Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and a planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor at the University of Florida, and this is the podcast where we spend a lot of time talking about plant genetic improvement. And over the years that we've done the podcast now, we've had maybe about a dozen episodes where we talked about domestication and about plant breeding and how do we take what nature gives us and makes it better and make it better with some human effort. And today we're going to talk about blackberries. And to talk about blackberries, we have Chad Finn. Dr. Chad Finn is a small fruits breeder. He's a research geneticist formally. Form, formally, not formerly. <laughs> Form, <laughs> you didn't get fired. Um, sorry to break not the news. <laughs> He's a research geneticist with the USDA ARS in Corvallis, Oregon. Welcome to the podcast, Chad. Delighted to be here, Kevin. Thank you so much for asking me to do this. Uh, it's, I've been hoping to have you on now for the four years that I've been doing this, and uh, glad that we could finally get here. So tell me a little bit about what you do uh, day to day and just kind of give us an idea of uh, the, the fruits crops, the diversity of fruit crops that you've been commissioned to improve. Sure. So this I'm a small fruit breeder, as you said, and in our portfolio, the uh, species we work with, we work with strawberries, blackberries, red raspberries, black raspberries, blueberries, and over the years, we've messed around with a few of the really minor crops like hardy kiwi and schizandra. And so it's a huge umbrella that we work under. And, you know, our overall general goals are to, first of all, develop new varieties or cultivars that will do well in the Pacific Northwest or in the U.S. that the commercial industry will plant. Um, second is we've always been very in tune with trying to you know, explore for new germplasm, whether that means actually traveling to other countries to collect it or getting it out of the National Clonal Germplasm Repository and growing it on our site or getting it from other breeding programs and working with them to get new germplasm into each of these uh, crops breeding programs. And then we also try to partner, well, it's it's a lesser part of what I do day to day. We partner with, uh, we'll call them genomicists, People like Nahala Basile, who really understand genomics and those tools. And that's not my skill set. So I partner with people who have that skill set. And it makes for a great team because I know a lot about germplasm and plant material and working in the field and what will work and not. And Nahala and my other partners uh, understand the amazing tools we're starting to develop to use in these different crops. So that's sort of the umbrella of what we work on, both from the crop perspective and the discipline perspective. Um, you know, I, each crop has a suite of, of traits we try to improve. In my case, because the Pacific Northwest is a leading producer of blackberries, black raspberries, red raspberries, blueberries, 
and number three for strawberries, but most of it's for processing. It's most of our traits are related to, in the case of the the caneberries and the blueberries, machine harvesting. In the case of all of them, we need intense flavor and intense color, uh, because if you think about how most processed fruit is used, it's often part of a final product, uh, and so it needs to really stand out when it's used. It's not that we ignore the fresh market traits, you know, shelf life and firmness and those sorts of things, but historically our first priority has been processing. Well, today I really wanted to focus on blackberries. It's uh, an interesting crop for a lot of reasons, and I've always um, appreciated your input and your thoughts on what this thing is and where it came from. But when we talk about blackberries, what is it exactly, and how is it different from things like raspberry or black raspberry? Okay, it's it's not really a very good definition, but the difference between a blackberry and raspberry is a matter of whether the receptacle that white thing stays on the plant when you pick it or stays with the fruit when you pick it. In the case of either a black raspberry or a red raspberry, which while related are very different species, it stays on the plant. And so you have a hollow berry when it's picked. In the case of blackberries, it picks with the plant, excuse me, it picks when you pick the fruit. And so anything that has that receptacle still in it is considered a blackberry, which leads to some funny things because Loganberry and boysenberry are by no means black. They're very red, but they are classified with the blackberries. Okay, and what are those things? I mean, you, you, I see these things in your talks from time to time. You know, what are some of the other near relatives to blackberries that we would recognize? Well, you know, the um, it's all in the genus Rubus, and they're native throughout uh, throughout the well, at least the northern hemisphere, very commonly. And, uh, you know, something like red raspberries is found around the, the globe. Blackberries are found throughout Europe and Asia, as well as in the U.S. But in the case of blackberry breeding, most of the breeding has worked with species from the eastern U.S., um, such as Rubus alleghaniensis and Rubus argutus. Or in the case of our breeding program, which is very different sort of genetic base, it's been mostly using the native trailing blackberry, Rubus ursinus, or red raspberry. There's a lot of red raspberry in the background of our blackberries. So one of the things you find in Rubus is they intercross pretty freely. Even something as diverse as a red raspberry and a blackberry can hybridize. And, you know, there's the story that, you know, one of the reasons we seldom use species designations for blackberries is, you know, in the eastern U.S., for instance, as farmland was cleared, there were distinct blackberry species. But as they sort of grew together and intercrossed, it's an all a big mixture of uh, blackberries. And as a colleague, uh, I won't say who, colleague said it's like they cleared all the land and blackberries had a big old sex party because they really mixed up all of the, uh, the genetics. You mentioned the genetic origins of this thing. Was it something that also or came with the rest of the Rosaceae family from uh, China and areas over in the Far East? Yeah, I think... You know, they've, they've done some work on trying to figure out where our trailing blackberry comes from, and that does appear to be uh, the case. There's some, um, definitely some, you know, island species that appear to be in the makeup of our trailing blackberries. Um, and then, you know, I, I guess I'm, I don't know that anybody's done the work. Um, Larry Alice at, uh, at Western Kentucky, 
Western Kentucky has done some work, uh, especially on his when he was doing his uh, PhD work in Maine on the origins of some of these different blackberry species. But I mean, I guess for me, it's they're polyploid by and large. There are some diploid species, but most of the blackberries that they would work with in the eastern United States are tetraploid, so have four sets of chromosomes. Whereas in our breeding program, we have ones that are we have cultivars we've released that are 6x, 7x, 8x, 10x, 12x. So I have 12 sets of chromosomes in some of our cultivars. And this partly may be why they interbreed so freely, but it also creates one of the challenges of why blackberries particularly have been hard to work with in the genomics arena because they're you know, the tools are getting better and better, but it's still pretty complicated. And when you have 8 to 12 sets of chromosomes, it's more difficult than if you have two sets of chromosomes. Yeah, especially when they're all so similar or sometimes almost the same. Uh, it makes them really, uh, it makes it really a challenge. But when you uh, talk about um, the, the polyploid nature, is the polyploid nature something that humans have selected because of the larger fruit size and other favorable attributes? I think it was already here. Um, you know, you look at the, the trailing blackberries that run from uh, California up into Canada, the Rubus or Sinus types, and uh, they are 8x, 12x, and I don't, I don't think it had anything to do with native people selecting them. I think it's just that's the way they always have been. Well, I think of ones like Tupi. You know that big giant Brazilian one, or wherever that's from. That's a that thing is like like almost a handful. And is that one particular? Do you know the ploidy on that one? Oh, it's known. I don't know it off the top of my head. It's it's an interesting one because it was a cross between uh, blackberry um, from Arkansas, and it's always listed as being a cross with a native Uruguayan blackberry. But there are no native Uruguayan blackberries, and. So the nearest thing people figure is that it's a cross between probably 4X material and boysen, which runs 6 or 7X. And so I'm assuming the, the ploidy is probably um, you know, 6 or 7X, but not sure. Well, what uh, about Rubus glaucus? Was that, would that be, isn't that from that area? Rubus glaucus is the an Andean blackberry. Um, you know, it's found sort of Peru, Colombia, Ecuador, probably down into... If it gets past the desert, it might be found in Chile, but it's uh, um, it's a one that's been difficult to use in breeding. We've now got some second generation things that we've selected after we crossed originally with our blackberries to Rubus glaucus, and then you know keep back crossing to the cultivated blackberries, and we're finally starting to get some things that have some commercial potential. Um, but yeah, it is sort of from the same background, but that's a, that's another one that was sort of a native natural polyploid that, uh, has done well in that region. Well, when you're looking at this from a eyes of a breeder, what are some of the major traits that people have taken on over the years from the, say the domestication process, getting it to something that is grown today in modern production? Sure. So, you know, blackberries have always been taken advantage of wherever people were grown. I mean, they were they, just like you talked about your backyard being uh, holding off the invasion of blackberries. They were around so people could eat them and use them in, in different products. But beginning, you know, there's some work in Europe in the 1800s, but really it was in the 1900s in the U.S. Uh, 
early, about 1920s, actually, uh, 1928, George Darrow, who went on to great fame at uh, USDA Beltsville, Maryland, for some of his strawberry work, he spent four years out in Oregon he, um, getting the Blackberry and Raspberry programs started. And he swapped positions with George Waldo, who went back, he, Darrow went back to Beltsville, and Waldo came back to his native Oregon. But they really took the native Ribicer sinus and some of the hybrids that had come out of, you know, the Loganberry that had come out of California from Judge Logan's work and started doing crosses with that, as well as there was a Dewberry from, uh, um, from Louisiana that worked very well in, in, in hybridizing to create some large-fruited uh, blackberries. And they sort of pulled together between Darrow and Waldo this germplasm pool that then created sort of this a whole new class of blackberries. It was at least from a commercial standpoint. And it was these commercial trailing blackberries. First varieties were released in the 30s. And even today, two important varieties released in O'Lally released in the 1940s and Marion released in the 1950s are still important varieties in different parts of the United States. Um, so that was sort of the domestication of that. Meanwhile, back in uh, Beltsville, Maryland, they were taking advantage of some of the eastern blackberries, and up in upstate New York, George Slate, to make use those eastern blackberries to get things that were domesticated but still pretty thorny. Um, I think one of the biggest things that's been key for blackberry domestication was getting rid of those thorns, and there's been different sources of thornlessness. In the eastern blackberries, it's a Merton thornless, which is a tetraploid that gave you smooth stem and thorn-free and the later triple crown and, and chester. That same source of thornlessness was used in the University of Arkansas program, which is the other really amazing uh, blackberry breeding program in the United States. They started in the 60s with Jim Moore working in the 60s through the 80s and now John Clark and they were doing some of the same things, taking this eastern blackberry material, using this Merton source of thornlessness, and by the 1980s had developed thornless blackberries to be planted in gardens and commercially. Out here in the West, we used a different source of thornlessness because we had such a high ploidy level, and so we used what we call the Austin thornless source, or we've also more recently used the um, Lincoln-Logan source of thornlessness. And now, in this day and age, it's hard to imagine a blackberry being released that's not thornless, uh, with one key exception, which I'll talk about in a second. But it's, <laughs> it's been that push to get thornlessness, which in the Pacific Northwest is not just to make them nicer to handle. It's a matter of uh, if you have a thorny product and you use a machine to harvest it, you'll always end up with some thorns in the product. You do the best job you can to keep them out of there, but inevitably... Somebody can end up with one in the roof of their mouth, and that leads to lawsuits. And so it was just critical uh, to get cultivars that are commercially available that are thornless. And between uh, our program and the Arkansas program and the old Beltsville program, that's pretty much the case now. Yeah, that was my question that was coming was, you know, the, this thornlessness, is this something that was really an impediment to hand harvesting, or was it really just uh, more of a liability uh, because of the, the mechanical harvesting? I think in the end, it's driven more by the liability. Um, the, you know, obviously, 
you know, anybody who is handling these does not want the thorns, especially the, the type of species that went into the eastern blackberries that were used in the Arkansas breeding program, they have big old thorns. Our blackberries out here, because of the rubus or sinus, have, they're more like raspberry thorns, not quite as mild as a raspberry, but a lot smaller. But still, when you're handling them, people wear gloves, and usually the gloves are the shoulder shoulder length ones so that you're not getting scratched up your arms. And so it's really nice for the workers who have to deal with them to not have these thorns. But, you know, even when you hand pick and you've got thorns, it's a potentially difficult um, crop to, to keep the thorns completely out of. Even hand-picked fruit with thorny variety can have some thorns. Or even just berries rubbing through the thorns then can be more susceptible if they're going to the fresh market to fruit rots getting into the berries because they've been punctured by a thorn, even if their thorn does not stay with the fruit. Well, who are the big producers in the in the states and worldwide? It's in the Pacific Northwest is the biggest producer for um, processed berries. Worldwide, Mexico is the biggest producer, and that's because well, oh, that's quite a story in the sense of they had no blackberries produced there probably twenty years ago, other than people's gardens, and between Brazos and then later Tupi. Um, or to pee, as they might say down there, it's uh, it's really just tens of thousands of acres have been planted, and it's pretty pretty sure that if you're picking, if you're eating blackberries in the winter season, from somewhere in October till somewhere in May, they're probably coming from Mexico. That would be fresh berries. Increasingly, because they have such a big fresh market, they will send some of their seconds to puree or juice markets, and then the other big fresh producer is California. They uh, produce a lot that are uh, into the fresh market and increasingly there is some really strong southeast production down in Georgia and the Carolinas uh, that's mostly for fresh market on the east coast. Ours in the northwest are mostly, uh, well we have some things that are sold now in the fresh market. It has been historically for processing and so if you're eating a you know, uh, any sort of jam or, you know, puree or, jam, you know, some sort of juice juice bar that has blackberries in it or any sort of products like that, there's a really good chance those fruit came from the Northwest. And, uh, you know, so as we each do our breeding, we're, we're going for slightly different traits. I mean, for me, it's absolutely critical to have machine harvestability. I need really good flavor, and it's not to knock the eastern flavors, but because our products are such a small part of might be the end product, you know, if it's fruit and an ice cream or something, it really needs to stand out. And our fruit tends to be a little more acidic because usually when it's put into a product, there's some sort of sweetener in there, and good flavor, it becomes even better flavor when it's, you know, uh, got the acid-sugar balance in such a place that it really accentuates the flavor. So aroma, flavor, uh, machine harvestability, good color are all important to us. If we were to go back to you know, Dr. Clark's program in Arkansas or other programs like the Driscoll's Blackberry program, uh, the private program, or plant sciences, or Pacific berry breeding, they are more focused on you know fresh markets. So it needs firmness that's more than enough to get it to the freezing plant. They need firmness so they can ship fruit across the country. 
they need a sweet product. We know that people, if they buy tart blackberries, they're not going to come back for them again. So they're not necessarily always as well balanced as, as we like our fruit flavor here in the Northwest, but the consumer generally likes a sweet blackberry. And the other differences between the sort of the, uh, the genetics in each program is if you, if you eat Northwest blackberries, you, they tend to have much less notable, notable seeds, and that's because they're a little flatter and softer, whereas the seeds that you get mostly in the fresh market, which is coming from eastern U.S. blackberry species, seeds tend to be a little more noticeable. They tend to be a little crunchier. But So those are all the kinds of traits regard, we, both programs are putting together. You know, on top of that, obviously, we, we need yield because growers have to make money. We need good plant health because we, we don't like to spray and we don't like plants dying. Um, and so there's a lot of other traits, but those are some of the most important ones in each of the programs. What the heck happened here in Florida? I mean, we seems like a good place to grow blackberries. And, you know, my my yard is, if there's any evidence, um, Brazos, Tupi, um, Kiowa, um, all the John Clark stuff does really, really well. And it just seems strange that we don't uh, have a breeding program here. And Wayne Sherman, I guess, was doing that for a while back in the uh, 70s and 80s. But any idea where that went down here? Well, it's, you've got two cultivars that you can were developed from the native species down there. And that's uh, Oklawaha and Florida Grand. And uh, I think those are probably available at garden center kind of places. I'm not sure they're grown much how much they're grown commercially, and they're usually often called dewberries, which is just another name for blackberries that's regionally used. And <laughs> there was a lot of disease is the biggest problem. Um, some of the diseases you can get as you move further south, uh, it gets to be harder and harder to keep the plants alive. There's things like double blossom rosette. There's some rusts that are not annual rust, but rather will kill the plant. And so I think that was one of the things that slowed things down for a while. Um, one of the other big changes in the blackberry industry that uh, um, has been is just a game changer right now, and this may be starting to help Florida, is the development of what we call primocane fruiting blackberries. And that's been something that was developed primarily at the University of Arkansas. And for those of you who are familiar with raspberries that either are called primocane fruiters or ever bearers or fall bearers. It's the same phenomenon going on in blackberries where the plants grow the new cane this year and late in the summer or the fall, they begin to flower and fruit. And then you cut the plants to the ground and usually, and then it happens again the following year. And when you have that kind of production, you can, those kinds of plants, you can also, um, excuse me, you can often produce in areas that don't have as much chilling, um, you can manipulate the, the timing of your harvest much better. And that whole primocane fruiting thing has really revolutionized the industry for the fresh market. Um, you know, we're, the, the varieties are improving by leaps and bounds. They're still thorny. That's the exception of where we still allow thorny blackberries because while we're starting to get good thornless primocane fruiting blackberries, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's just a slow process because the thornlessness in the eastern blackberries is recessive, which just means it takes a couple generations to, con to consistently be producing thornless offspring. The other thing that's really neat about the primocane fruiting blackberries is, you know, full credit goes to the to, for University of Arkansas 
John Clark and Jim Moore, and they had a great grad student there who who worked on these, and they identified this trait. But they all felt that it was going to be probably 20 years before they saw anything good come from it. And this is where sharing germplasm is a really good thing. John Clark sent some of his selections to Oregon, and we planted them out on our farm. And in Arkansas, the problem is they flower in June and, and early July on the fall crop, and it's really hot there. turns out that blackberry flowers, when they're really hot, are often pretty sterile. And so the fruit are just nubbins and really unappealing. But you come out to Oregon and you put it into a, a climate that's much milder during the bloom period, and you get fully formed large fruit. And John Clark tells a wonderful story about coming to our field, and he can tell you the date and almost the hour when he came across his selections and saw how beautiful they were in Oregon. And that made him realize that you put these things in the right spot, whether it's um, you know, container production for off-season somewhere, whether it's coastal California, where it's mild, those sorts of places, these can have a huge impact. And so this is where sharing germplasm was key to discovering new things. And uh, he's taken that forward and, and just developed more amazing uh, primocane fruiting cultivars, but also led to, you know, Dr. Bernadine Strick here at Oregon State, and who's a horticulturist and a student, Ellen Thompson, who sort of developed the production systems for these primocane fruiting blackberries that, you know, you've got an Arkansas berry that looks good in Cal Oregon that now has Oregon-developed production systems that, lo and behold, is great in California and other places back east as well and in other countries. So it's all this, we all help each other to try to make this, this thing work. And it's, it's amazing what the University of Arkansas has done with those genetics. It really is. And I know that it, it, that the blackberry community, or at least the small fruit community, has generally been pretty good about uh, being interactive and collegial in terms of accelerating each other's programs and working together to do that kind of thing. How much of the uh, blackberry work today is helped by molecular resources. And you mentioned the folks over at ARS with Nala Masilla and others. How, how, um, how much of that is being facilitated by molecular markers and other technologies? At this point, it's not. Uh, it's still, I would say, we're, where we've had the most success in Rubus in our program is with black raspberries. Black raspberries are diploid. We found three sources of aphid resistance scattered across the eastern U.S. We know that if a black raspberry has one source of resistance that resists to aphids, which then give it virus resistance, if we have one source of aphid resistance, we'll get that may last five to 20 years before the aphids overcome it. You have two sources of resistance in one plant, it lasts a really, can potentially last a really long time. So it's important for us to ideally get two sources of resistance. But as you can imagine, how do you tell if it's got source A from Michigan or source B from uh, Ontario in any way but using molecular tools? And that's what we're doing. We're able to identify main source, Ontario source, Michigan source. We can now use markers to tell whether these plants have which sources and whether they have one source of resistance or two sources of resistance. We're going to, you know, we're now moving those two sources of resistance into commercially viable material, and that's moving forward. We've 
you know, and, and red raspberries is a great deal of uh, using the, beginning to use the molecular tools for looking at disease resistance. And, uh, and some of that's led um, by folks at Driscoll's. But it's a, another case of where it's a diploid. The blackberries were part of a, a large project called Rosebreed that looked at trying to understand genomics in rosaceous crops. And, you know, rosaceous meaning everything from strawberries and blackberries through peaches, pears, apples, um, and cherries. And we've started to develop the tools. We think we have some markers identified for looking at uh, sugars. And so we may be able to use that tool to identify the, the uh, you know, whether we're identifying parents or seedlings that have higher sugar levels. But the trick is, as you know, you've probably seen this as things go along, is, is when you're going to do things with molecular markers, you need to figure out what traits you're willing to make that expense on. And so screening seedlings is seldom cost-effective, unless it's a trait like my aphid resistance in black raspberries. And there's not that many traits that are so, you know, that are threatening the industry in blackberries that would drive that. So you take a step back, and as we get a better understanding of this um, plant material and, and the genomics, then we start looking at the parents. And if it will, if I can analyze my parents and look for markers for whether it's disease tolerance or fruit quality traits, and try to do a better job of me concentrating those traits into commercially to crosses that will more likely yield commercial material, that's when it really becomes interesting. And that's sort of where the stage we're getting at. We're starting to understand the, the, uh, some of the marker trade associations, and we will start to implement that in parental selection. And there are some big companies that are really interested in trying to really uh, get at the, um, the whole genomic structure of in Rubis. And if they can pull it off, and they said they were going to share it publicly, then that would be a great thing that would really help us make those kinds of advances that have been made in other crops. Well, they yeah, just uh, took apart the octoploid strawberry recently. It was just published in February. And with that kind of resource, how close is blackberry to strawberry where maybe some of this could serve as a good reference to be able to assemble something like blackberry? That's what we're counting on. That's what we're counting on. It's... Uh, that was the whole sort of the part of the whole process of the rosaceous, excuse me, rose breed was with the understanding that you know there's a lot in common between apples and strawberries and raspberries and blackberries, and so how can we take that knowledge and use it? Um, and that that's where we're going. I think it's just part of the problem when you you look at a lot of these genomic type things is genomic projects right now. There are two public breeding programs for blackberries that are significant in the world, ours and the University of Arkansas. Some top-notch, you know, Driscoll's company and Pacific Berry Breeding are doing a great job breeding privately in California. But you start looking at the critical mass of people in blackberries, and it's hard for us to take the time, especially since both John Clark at Arkansas and myself were not... 30 years old, we're 50 years old, 55, 55 to 60 years old. 
And it's, it's not that we can't be trained and we don't have great people in our lab to do some of this work, but it's going to really come as our replacements come along who have that skill set and can bridge that information. And then more importantly, that that information is now becoming more accessible from, you know, these strawberry projects and from these Apple projects so that we can pull that into Blackberries. And that, it's all going to happen. It just never happens as fast as you want it to happen. Oh, you're telling me. <laughs> I remember, you know, just to get just to raise the initial money to do the diploid strawberry genome, you know, took years and uh, let alone doing it. And uh, the other thing that's interesting, you mentioned the Rosaceae family. And of course, you know, you and I have been involved in those communities for a while, but uh, you much more than me. Um, but the other ones that the listeners may not realize are related to, you know, peaches, apples, pears, strawberries, cherries, blackberries, is uh, roses, hence the rosaceae name, and uh, almonds. Right. And, uh, and a whole bunch of different um, ornamentals that you see around, you know, different areas like Cotoneaster and uh, uh, Hawthorne and other things like that. So it's a really important family economically. And within that, the rubus and strawberry and rose are all pretty closely related, much more than they are to apples or peaches. So right. it's really funny when you start to see these relationships falling out from all the molecular data and all the taxonomy. As your listeners probably realize, I mean, just the number of crops that out of the rosaceous that we consume, you just listed some of them, but there's very few, I can't think of another family that's as important, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, to the fruits that we eat and the, so many of the plants that we appreciate, like you mentioned, cotoneaster and, you know, roses and on and on, potentilla all the way up and down the line, it's uh, in the rosaceous family. So over time, breeders have really allowed blackberries to be more available and better price and everything. But how has that happened historically? As you and I know, Kevin, you know, back when you were from Chicago, I was from D.C. In the 70s, you hardly ever saw blackberries in the grocery store. I would say you never saw them. You might see them at a farm, pick your own operation, but they just weren't there. And beginning in the 1970s, especially with some of the private companies realizing they wanted to diversify the fruits they offered, all of a sudden they needed blackberries to be shippable year-round, available year-round. And so breeders responded with developing varieties that are firmer, ship better. And, you know, much like some other crops, I would say, you know, in the 90s we spent a lot of time in the fresh market developing things that would get there in good shape but not necessarily have the best quality. That was secondary. And now, I would say in the last 25 years, the emphasis has been on quality, whether for fresh market or for freezer section. And so now we need those blackberries in your grocery store year-round, whether it's in the frozen section, there's a few canned, which always amazes me, or in the fresh section. And those blackberries need to taste good because you know, the, the consumer is demanding good flavor. And so breeders are working very hard to develop that. It is, you know, we you hear sometimes people who bemoan, you know, breeding. They're not interested. They're just interested in, in, you know, firmness. They don't care about flavor. And, and in our breeding program and the Arkansas breeding program, nothing could be further from the truth. We are, our real goal is to, to get something to the consumer that tastes really good because. I will tell you, I work with all these crops, and there's nothing that tastes as good as a good blackberry. 
I the flavor range in blackberry though is amazing from things you cannot spit out fast enough because your body says they're poison to things that are absolutely aromatic and delicious and you, I, you know I you know a bad blueberry and a bad raspberry is usually a bland one bad strawberry there can be some bitters in strawberries but none of them have the flavor range to absolutely spectacular that blackberries have and so we're trying to get that to the consumer and uh, we want them to, to love them as much as we do well, maybe the last question I could ask you, and I should mention, you know, Chad was the person who introduced me to Dr. Maxine Thompson, who was the Hascap Berry Breeder from episode 117. And if you haven't listened to that one, I really would recommend it. She is absolutely amazing, probably in her mid-90s by now. Um, but she was a wonderful, wonderful interview about plant breeding. But if you had uh, good advice, Chad, for students who are currently thinking about careers in plant biology, is plant breeding something that is still taking off and on an uptick? And what should they do to get there? Plant breeding absolutely is on the uptick. Um, you know, what's mostly changes over time is where it's being done. You know, there's more being done privately than there is publicly. Uh, you know, I will put a plug in. There is not a finer breeding program in the world than what Driscoll's does across all the crops. They spend a huge amount of money to develop new uh, berry crops. And uh, But there are still really strong private programs. You, you know, University of Florida, you've got uh, you know, a top-notch blueberry program that's uh, you know, world-class. And so there are great opportunities um, across the world. What do you do? I mean, first of all, I think one of the tricks that uh, John Clark and I often talk about is if you're going to be a good plant breeder, you need to be able to stand out in the rain and the sun. And it is absolutely critical that you understand those genomic tools. It's absolutely critical that you have some knowledge of the lab and, and how to work in that. But if you're going to be a good plant breeder, you need to be able to stand outside all day long and eat an awful lot of fruit. And you need to learn how to partner with people, whether it's to develop uh, germplasm exchange to improve your program or as I argue, it's really good for plant breeders to be partnered with genomicists because both of our fields have expertise and it's hard to be good at both. Um, usually if you're a good plant breeder, you're out in the field so much you don't necessarily have the skills, time to spend researching all that genomics technology. And uh, on the other hand, if you're, if you're really going to devote yourself to terrific lab work, it's hard to have the time to spend out in the field. And so being able to develop those partnerships. The other thing that I really push is, you know, regardless of what your skill set is, use your skill set. You know, it's like some of us are really deep thinkers. I've had grad students who, um, you know, they are just, they are just blow me away with their brilliance. If any of your listeners listen, it met me, I'm not so smart all the time, as my son told me, but I have an ability to work with people. I love spending time outside year-round. I love berries. I love my field work. I'm looking forward to it right now. And I love working with growers. I love talking to them to hear what their challenges are, to try to figure out how can I fix that problem. And I will tell you, there's nothing cooler than, you know, I'll go driving out in a couple weeks to start looking at fields to see thousands of acres of a crop that you developed. You developed that variety that they're happily growing and making money. And so that's a big thrill in plant breeding is that thrill of discovery. I think, 
you know, if you're the type of person who loves to go clamming or mushrooming and love that thrill of discovery, you get some idea of what it's like to find that really cool seedling that you're going to make a selection in your seedling field. And so how do you, you know, those kinds of uh, opportunities are there, and it's a matter of taking advantage of them. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that the other big angle is the being comfortable with delayed gratification. <laughs> because, because it takes, uh, how many years does it take to release a new BlackBerry cultivar? Oh, it's short. It's only 9 to 15 years. Um, <laughs> so but, the uh, clock is running and you're yeah. you know, a new, new plant breeder at a university and you're product of your hard work and your blood sweat and tears mostly tears is uh 15 years on the horizon yeah but as you know kevin if you if you're starting a program that's by all means the case but hopefully one of the things one of the, the slide i use at the beginning of almost every one of my presentations and i'll probably butcher it here but uh it's the old uh we have warmed ourselves from fires we did not build we have drunk from wells we did not dig and in plant breeding that is so true that we count on our predecessors to have done a decent job setting our germplasm up so that we can take advantage of it and not have to wait 15 years. And likewise, if we're doing a good job as a plant breeder, we're going to leave our program in good shape for the next person. So that, you know, USDA, we don't have tenure, but we have things similar to tenure, but so that somebody can be successful in that kind of timeline. And uh, that, that, that is a key thing is we're counting on each other as we move forward. Um, I will tell you on the, the timeline thing is I was bemoaning the fact that it took uh, 9 to 15 years for the crops I worked with once when I was at a meeting in China only to realize that I was talking to a bunch of foresters. And they're on a 70-year turnaround cycle, so I had nothing to complain about. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, the people who work with trees and, you know, whales and things probably <laughs> have a much different feeling about that. Exactly, well, um, exactly. So if people want to learn more about you or your program, where can they uh, find a website or follow you in social media? There's a USDA website that links to our publications. There's a, you know, I'm at Berry Guy on Twitter. Well, at Oregon, Oregon Berry Guy. Oregon, Oregon Berry Guy. Guy. There we go. That's uh, Berry Guy might be somebody else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, and by all means, I mean, you know, especially students or people interested in the field. Um, I get a little crazy from about the 1st of June to the 1st of August being in the field, which I love. Uh, but, you know, we're, we, we, we're really welcoming of visitors. And, you know, whenever I can, if a student's got questions or a colleague, you know, somebody who's interested in the area has questions, I'm happy to try to answer them. Um, anybody who's interested. I'm, I love enthusiastic people. Um, and there are some good uh, berry discussion groups. There's a blackberry discussion group on uh, Facebook, and so people are really interested in, in blackberries. There are other opportunities up there. Well, that's really good. And we should plug the Journal for Berry Research, which is you and I are both editors for the journal. Um, it's also an up-and-coming journal for research if people want to, um, if any berry aficionados are listening who, who are in research, it's uh, a good place to put your work. So I'll, I'll give that shameless plug, too. Yeah, well, I would. It's not just a shameless plug. I mean, goodness gracious, uh, it's a journal that's only uh, whatever eight years old at the most at this point, and they've grown from uh, uh, not fragile beginnings, but uh, from the beginning, and now it's it's a really well done journal 
got great research in it. We're talking about the Journal of Berry Research. Uh, I think it's been, had historically had a little more European influence, but that's starting to change. And, you know, we're certainly, uh, you and I both are involved in that journal, encouraging colleagues to consider publishing there. It's a, it's a great opportunity for people. Very good. And, and I hope people do think about taking you up on your offer of, of visits, you know, in the appropriate time of year, because stopping in to see you or stopping in over with Kim Hummer's shop and um, just getting to see the germplasm and see, you know, the, the, all of the strawberries, all the different gooseberries, the things that she has out there um, are really, this is a, a, really is a public gem that we pay for as taxpayers and is something that really is an outstanding resource that everybody should appreciate. So I'll just throw that out there too. Yeah. And you know, you know, we got used to being around it all the time, but I still remember the wonder the first time I went to the repositories field planting of blueberries and to see 400, not just different cultivars, but there were also different species in there. And I just, you know, now I drive by it every day and I take it for granted and I, you hate it that that happens, but I've driven by it 6,000 times, but it is amazing to see that field. And, um, the resources they have there, the genetic resources they have there. Also, you know, you are in a horticultural wonderland in Florida, but, uh, you know, I'll put in a shameless plug for the Pacific Northwest, uh, Willamette Valley, and up in the uh, uh, north of Seattle, some of those areas. Just having grown up in D.C. and spent a lot of time in Minnesota and Missouri, which are corn and bean states and cattle, and horticulture is... It's not that it's not important, but it's just not the thing that drives the state agriculture. Out here in Oregon and Washington, oh my goodness, the and for that matter, California, just horticulture, berries and vegetables and seed crops and hazelnuts really drive agriculture. And for horticultural geeks like myself, it's just a joy to drive around and see these things in production. No, you're, you're exactly right. Well, thank you so much for uh, talking with us today, t- Chad. It's really, really good to hear you. And, um, you know, well, you're welcome back anytime. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for doing this, Kevin. It's it's a joy to, to spend time with you. And it's also always a joy to, to hear the different stories you uh, have people tell. So thank you very much. Yeah, well, next time, let's do it in the same room. <laughs> same room with a beer. Yeah, you bet. No, that would be great. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. (laughs) Write a review on iTunes. um, Share your interest in this with a friend. We have almost 200 episodes going into our fifth year. And it's all because of the enthusiasm by listeners that is the wind in the sails that keeps this pirate ship moving. Um, So thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to TalkingBiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.